HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of a machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, every successful artist should have a stockpile of go-to pieces, performances, processes. But Jessica Badalana's repertoire is in the kitchen and is the title of her compendium cookbook. She's co-authored cookbooks with Charles Fan of Slanted Door, of Chad Robertson of Tartine, Matthew Jennings of Townsman in Boston, and knows that freedom comes from cooking familiar things frequently, and only then can you adapt. From fancy toast to the three greatest cookies, relax, practice, and perfect your own home repertoire anywhere. Jessica Badalana, welcome. Thank you so much. Literally on the bus from Boston. Fresh off the bus. It, the, the tour life is something that we should explore on a future episode someday, because it is a hustle. Oh, it's so glamorous. <laughs> so glamorous. Well, now you're in this beautiful backyard of Roberta's on this sunny day. And wh- what have you been cooking on the road? Because when you write a cookbook, you have to figure out what those recipes are that are transportable. And, and that makes sense in certain places and times. What, what have been your go-to repertoire of repertoire? Yeah, the, the meta repertoire. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's kind of nice because when I started the tour, it was, the book came out April 3rd. 
So it was spring in California where I live now. Uh, so I did a lot of the spring recipes. We did a lot of roasted carrots with burrata, um, the greenest green salad. Um, and then, you know, I just got here last week and it's spring here now. So, uh, I did a class last night, greenest green salad, carrots with burrata, um, Fatouche salad, which I think is a really lovely spring thing. And now it's all the, like all the grilled stuff, honey, harissa chicken, tahini chicken, scallion flatbreads that you do on the grill. So I'm getting sort of the season twice. Yeah. So somehow you're staying ahead of that time zone of that seasonality, but San Francisco has that almost eternally. It does. <laughs> I know we're spoiled. Yeah, it's a very different place than where you grew up in Vermont. Well, it, it is. And, you know, last night I did this class in Boston and I was like, there's so many great things about Boston, like Hellman's mayonnaise. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think your brown sugar is better on the East Coast. And everyone was like, that seems like faint praise. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I grew up in Vermont. Uh, and I lived in Boston for about five years after college and then moved to California about 15 years ago. Um, so it's funny. I, I still think of myself very much as a New Englander. I identify as a New Englander, but it's, you know, I've, now I've lived almost as long outside of New England as I have. Are there any New England affects in the book itself? Well, they're baked beans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are, are truck stop baked truck beans. Truck stop baked beans. Um, it's funny, actually, that baked bean recipe, I had been, my mom makes great baked beans and I had been messing around with recipes and, you know, using my mom's recipe sort of as the foundation for it. And then I was home last summer and it's like every classic home cook. She was like, oh, I didn't tell you. I always do this. And, oh, I forgot to mention. I was like, mom, (laughs) I couldn't get mine to turn out like hers because she had left out like two of the ingredients and some of the steps. So we finally married the two together. What What is this truck stop in Maine, though? That was an inspiration for oh, these yeah. beans. So my wife is from Maine, from northern Maine, like not the super sexy coastal Maine that everyone wants to go to, but like the sort of central Maine, not near the coast. Um, and there's this amazing truck stop in Bangor, Maine called Dice Arts. Uh, it's family run, and it's sort of like the last stop between Bangor and Canada. Um, so they have showers, you know, for long haul truckers and a little gift shop and, um, and there's a restaurant that's open 24 hours a day. And it's amazing cause they could, you know, they could kind of serve anything cause people are stuck on the road there, <laughs> but they make stuff from scratch. Like they make the, you know, the bread from scratch, they make the baked beans from scratch, they get ham from like a local source. So it's actually like a, a cool place to stop. If you ever happen to be in Bangor, Maine. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I'm heading up to hope sometime later this year and, that's the thing about driving in that area of the world, too, that there are only so many roads. Like, I'm usually stuck on one, and I do stop at Red Zeets in yeah, this Cassett, yeah. which I know the locals hate. Yeah. It's such a good lobster it's roll. such a good lobster roll. But then there's treats there, too, um, the store treats, and their baked goods are way better than they have to be. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, and I think it's sort of fun, too, when you develop a repertoire, like, you're pulling things from, like, all over, right? Like, I mean, I, I'm a little bit like a magpie in that way, like... You sort of, I think my repertoire developed from, you know, things my mom cooked, things I grew up eating, um, you know, little tips and tricks that I learned from from the chef collaborations I did. But also like, you know, things like stopping at this truck stop and having this, you know, amazing sort of basic but amazing experience um, starts to inform the way that you cook at home. Yeah. And I love that we're not talking about Chez Pennies first, but we're talking about a truck stop in Maine. That informed your <laughs> cooking. But you spend a little time as a reservationist at Chez Panisse and being around that world really formed some kind of food ideology. Yeah, I always say I had uh, the worst job at the best place. Um, <laughs> I had moved out f- to the West Coast, and I, you know, I I had lived in Boston for a long time, and I 
sort of knew the food scene there. I knew a lot of the chefs. Um, I'd worked at this little specialty food shop in Cambridge, Formaggio Kitchen, um, and was really tapped into that food community in Boston. And I moved. And wait, to, first let's give a shout out to Jason Bond too. Let's give a shout out to our <laughs> old friend Jason Bond, uh, who runs an amazing restaurant called Bondier in uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My former roommate and was chef and, at Number Nine Park when I walked in there with my camera around my neck. Dozens of years ago. We've just discovered so many yeah. tangled webs between the two of us. Um, yeah, so I uh, I moved out to San Francisco, and I thought, like, oh, this will be fine. I'll just, like, I'll just keep writing about food. I'm just going to drop right into the scene. But I didn't know, I didn't know anyone. Um, and so I had a friend who was working uh, as a server at Chez Panisse, and she said, you know, they're looking for, for more people to work, and she didn't tell me the job. And so I went over, and I was like, great, okay, like, you know, what's the gig? And it was reservationist, um, which there is like a, it's a grueling, it's a grueling job. Yeah. How do they release reservations? Is it monthly? Is it's it? It's monthly. It was when I worked there. I think still is. Um, 30 calendar days. Um, and the worst was when you were like on for the day where a Saturday open, you know, like the Saturday 30 days out. It was just hell. You know, the phone wouldn't stop ringing. Um, but every day, I mean, it's a very civilized place and everyone, every member of the staff got to eat. Um, staff lunch, which is an amazing thing at Chez because it's all the leftovers from the night before. So I think I stayed for lunch, really. <laughs> um, I mean, what of staff staff lunch made it into repertoire? What little inklings? What little tips? Uh, the aioli um, is definitely a Chez Panisse-inspired um, thing. Uh, what else do we eat? They, you know, it was always beautiful stuff. And I think, you know, more... Then the recipes, it was sort of the sensibility, of course. Like everyone talks about the, you know, the California and the Chez Panisse sensibility. But that was, you know, it was still new to me. Um, and to learn about all those ingredients and all those purveyors. In some ways, like working in the office, like in my off time, I would file um, invoices. <laughs> so I got to know who all the producers were, um, which was, you know, it was a good education for me. Uh, and then... You know, when I left, I felt like I was, I had a sense of, of the scene and who the big players were. So it ended up, you know, being a worthwhile experience. You know what's such a big player in your book? Mayonnaise. And in, in that aioli, <laughs> in um, so many different recipes, and there's a debate that you and Samin Nosrat had uh, via a New York Times article as to whether or not to use Hellman's Best Foods or make your own. And we'll talk about that in a second, but that aioli finds itself in iterations in your green goddess dressing in Mr. Ellis's tomato tart. Like it's such a foundation of so many things in your cooking repertoire. I was glad that it had its own page and it was so highlighted. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I didn't know I was such a mayonnaise freak until I started working on this book. And it was funny cause Samin, um, she's a brilliant cook and she got an early copy of the book and she said to me in confidence before she wrote the New York Times article, like, I got this, your book, and I, I opened it up to the first recipe, and the second ingredient on the page, the first recipe is the greenest green salad, and the second ingredient in the ingredient list is mayonnaise, Hellman's mayonnaise specifically. And she said to me, I just thought, like, oh, I know what kind of book this is going <laughs> to be. Um, I think she thought it was just going to be, like, filled with, you know, shortcuts and hacks, which... You know, it is to a, in a in a sense, but I I like to think that there's smart shortcuts and hacks that you know reasonable busy people want. Um, and I I consider myself to be a relatively reasonable and certainly very busy person. Um, and so we had a discussion, sort of a you know, you know, a discussion about where when it makes sense to to do something from the ground up, like make your own aioli, and when 
it doesn't. Um, and I, I think I might have converted her. Yeah. I don't know. Well, we'll check in with her. But I, I do <laughs> I do think it's an important thing in your repertoire that not everything has to be homemade. That just like going to Chez Panisse and now you know all these farmers, you have a trusted you know, arsenal or artisan in your pocket to be able to access at any time. I also think, you know, I have two small children. I have six and four-year-old boys. So it's always crazy. It's just crazy. It's crazy. My life is crazy now. And I think having those children sort of informed this whole, this whole book, really, because I used to be able to, you know, go to tons of grocery stores and spend lots of time and we could eat at nine o'clock and it didn't matter. And then I had these kids and I was like, okay, you know, like record stop. And it was this, I felt like it was sort of survivalist in a sense. Like, am I just going to like give in to like meal kits or prepared foods? Or am I going to like kind of dig into this collection of recipes that I can make, you know, blindfolded with like a kid in my arms, which for, you know, like four years straight, that was the case. Um, so I think, you know, the, all the recipes in the book come from this really, uh, sort of true place. Um, you know, a really, and I like to say that people can, you know, if I can do it at home with all these challenges, then I think everyone else can too. And the book doesn't actually start with recipes. It starts with this great quote, uh, three hours stretch between picking up our two young boys from school and settling them into bed for the night. Then my wife and I call running the gauntlet. <laughs> and on that, we're going to take a quick break and run the gauntlet with Jessica Badalana. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Moxie Rosenblum, my dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And if you weren't listening to that ad, you should listen to it again. Aside from Moxie being the cutest, this summer fun drive started June 19th, goes through July 31st, and we're trying to raise 25K for HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And, you know, we asked listeners and members alike, we are a 501c3, nonprofit, food-focused podcast station in the back of Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. And, you know, first of all, we'd love to have you in. Stop by, say hey. David the Engineer is always willing to spill a glass of Lambrusco with anyone. But go to Heritage Radio Network, a bottle, (laughs) a large glass 
a chalice. HeritageRadioNetwork.org backslash donate and click on that beating heart. But back to Jessica Badalana and Repertoire, this wonderful book that you wrote, and we were just talking during the break how you think it's more about the recipes, and I think you are such a big part of these recipes. Um, even if it's not about you, there's a spring for two salad, which actually comes via Sam, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Moganum. of Byright Market. And what I love about Byright Market in San Francisco is obviously it has this cornucopia of California produce, but it's also Persian and American and Japanese cucumbers in this recipe and that it is so globally minded. And I think your book and your recipes are as well. Well, also, I think that most, you know, the supermarket cucumbers, I think they're kind of gross, you know, I think they're sort of seedy and gross. And so, um, so yeah, I, this is actually an interesting thing because I wanted these recipes to work for everyone everywhere. Um, and you know, yeah, this is my repertoire and there are lots of stories in there about how I came to these recipes and why I love these recipes. Um, but I feel like sort of the power and the glory of this book is the, um, is, is the durability of these recipes that they can be made in anyone's kitchen and turn out just as well, um, as they do in mine. And so, you know, it's mostly regular grocery store ingredients that, um, regular people can find, um, and if something really matters, I say so, and I, and I let people know why I think it matters. Because uh, I think so many cookbooks are extremely um, sort of dogmatic, and then you wonder, like, does it really matter? And so I, I want people to trust me and so that when I say it really matters, it really matters. And when I say, like, use Hellman's, like, use Hellman's. Um, because I think that is real for people who are trying to get dinner on the table. Um, and I had these recipes tested in by friends who live in Alaska and friends who live in Maine and all points in between, just because I wanted to get that feedback of like, oh, I can never find X. So there's like, there's no matcha in the book. There's no sumac in the book. You know, these, those are ingredients that I think are interesting and that I might mess around with, but they're not, in my mind, repertoire ingredients for me. Sweet corn fritters. I was instantly attracted to it because it, it is something, it is a staple of mine when in Northern Michigan during the summer, uh, I even bought my father-in-law this zipper, they call it, and it's to take all the kernels off the corn because he makes corn fritters. I'm not sure if I can actually make yours in front of him, but we might try the two together. <laughs> but even that, you know, harkens from Vermont farm stands and buying corn by the bucket and that you had such a mass of corn. You must have hated it at a point, too, but seemingly you're celebrating this. Ingredient. I don't remember. Actually, I wrote also, I should um, give a little shout out to our friends at Short Stack Editions because I did um, issue 10 was a single subject book all about corn. So the corn fritter recipe first, I think was first published there. Um, but no, I mean, the seasons in Vermont are so short. Like, I think you get a little bit spoiled in California. I was just saying to my mom the other day, like, well, we have strawberries now and we'll still have strawberries in October. You know, there's something about that anticipation. And in Vermont, you don't get corn, local corn, until like the end of August. So there's a lot of buildup. And I, I think I tell the story in the book, but we would buy it by the you know, dozen, you, and you'd get a baker's dozen. There are five of us in my family. And we would eat corn, buttered corn for dinner. That's it, just buttered corn, which is really a prelude to eating these giant like plate-sized strawberry shortcakes. Because um, my mom sort of, you know, her rationale was like, well, what you really want, you know, is to eat a plate-sized strawberry shortcake, but, like, you have to eat something before it. <laughs> and I think, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, like, do you 
roll your corn on the stick of butter or do you cut a pat of butter and rub it? I mean, obviously, there's only one right way. Well, uh oh, uh oh, which, which way is the right <laughs> way? I don't want to give myself. You gotta up. roll it. You gotta roll it on the stick so you get it fully coated. Well, that that uh. means that's a stick <laughs> devoted completely to corn. Then. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't have a. <laughs> I don't have a pat of butter devoted to corn, but I will from now on. Yeah, I mean, and you know, a stick of corn is probably a reasonable amount for a dozen years, right? You're gonna work through that whole stick. Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly. <laughs> In a house of two, yes. Yes. <laughs> Those corn fritters are amazing, though. They're good for breakfast. They heat, like, they stay crispy when they're reheated, which is sort of mirac- miraculous. Because a lot of fritters get, like, kind of that soggy wet dog thing, you know? But these don't. They they crisp up. And I like them um, with maple syrup on them. I also love the versatility, just like you said. It came from having corn for dinner converted into these fritters, but that there's this latitude of getting it right. Well, not even latitude. You're telling people, like, this is the right one. Do this it this right way. Um, but with duckery, yet yeah, there's so many right places to stop, and you've decided to give you know that that nearly penultimate. I mean, you could probably take a re-ed and bread it up again and fry it again. But you go through all the steps of curing and salt and spices, um, submerging in duck fat and confing it slowly, then taking it out. You could sear it skin side down until crispy. But why do you take it that extra degree and go into creamy, delicious riettes. That's why, because it's creamy and delicious. Yeah. I think also, you know, people have this idea of like, oh, I can't make, you know, charcuterie. I bet people look at that recipe and they're like, duck riette, that sounds hard. And I'm like, if you can like put salt on something and then put it in fat, like that's all you do. This is actually, the, it's like almost like a no cook recipe. It's kind of like, I mean, truly you season the duck and then you just put it in its little ducky bath and that's it. And that's the whole head note for the recipe, too. Yeah. (laughs) We might have finessed it a little bit, but... (laughs) But shredding it from the bones and combining it with all those pan juices and fat, I mean, it's such a beautiful thing. And it does, if you've never done it before, feel like a very long process. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, actually, I just got into a little bit of a situation a couple weeks ago. I had... I was cleaning up my freezer, and I had all these citrus peels that I had intended to candy back in January... And I was like, I better deal with this. Uh, I was probably avoiding a deadline. I certainly was avoiding a deadline. And I was like, I'm going to candy these today. And so I, I pulled up a recipe from um, Epicurious. And this is no fault of Epicurious's at all. But I didn't, I didn't actually read the recipe all the way through. <laughs> and I like got going. And it involves like boiling and then resting and then boiling. And, and then I was like at the bottom, it's like, this recipe takes 72 <laughs> hours. <laughs> so I was like, ugh. But then I was committed, you know. Yeah. Another interesting thing about this book, I mean, the recipes take a range of different times to make, but you say at the beginning that cook these often, frequently, because that's how they become part of your repertoire. It's not about plotting out three days to make candied citrus peels. It's about making that over and over until you feel comfortable with it. Well, and the party line that I've been um, that I've been giving for the book is that it's real recipes for real life that really work. And so, you know, for me, real life, there's, it's a spectrum of things that you need food for. Like you need, you know, the three ingredient pantry pasta for like when you're, you know, hungover or you have to like feed your kids, you need the, you know, the birthday cake for celebrations. You need like, sometimes you're going to splash out. And so I tried to have recipes that cover, you know, all of those experiences, but I think most of them are pretty straightforward. What is that repertoire chocolate cake? It was my wife's birthday yesterday. Did you make the cake? Oh, I'm a terrible baker. And so... (laughs) 
I, I plotted it out that the bakery next door to the bar where we were ending up made uh, the cake. Margaret Palka bakes, and it was amazing. Had strawberries on the inside and the chocolate glaze, and I can't do that. But maybe I can do yours. You can totally do mine. You can totally do it. This I, I feel like I'm actually pretty... Um, I have strong feelings about birthday cakes. I grew up... My mom cooked for us growing up, and she's a great cook. And we always had homemade birthday cakes. There was no, there wasn't really any option. I grew up in rural Vermont, so it was like, I mean, I suppose the option would have been box cake but, or no cake or no cake, <laughs> no cake. Um, but my mom always made our birthday cakes, and so I mean, that's really like an act of love, I think, to make a, a cake for somebody. And I even like, you know, I go to, I'm doing the birthday party circuit now with my kids, and it's very rare to find like a homemade you know, birthday cake or cupcakes at this, you know, San Francisco birthday party circuit. They're always like fancy. I mean, they're delicious, but I kind of have, a, I mean, I like the like lopsided sort of fucked up, like clearly homemade cakes. Like for me, that is like true love. Um, but, but then do you end up making cakes for everyone's birthday because everyone likes your cakes the best? I make birthday cakes for everyone in the family for sure. Um, and everyone gets to request the cake that they want. Um, and, and I have to say, I have to give credit to my wife, Sarah. She, loves to bake and she like really helped me like fine tune this birthday cake. So it's as much her recipe as it is mine. I've never been a cake or like crazy sweet tooth person in that fashion. So I would have gone straight to your pavlova and lime curd. Oh yeah, that's a good one. That, yeah. I mean, it's not good for a kid growing up. Like, go oh, come over for pavlova. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, I also have a late August birthday. So everyone was away, you know, pre Labor Day. Yeah. So I, I never really grew up with birthday cakes in that same fashion. Pavlova is a fun, that's a fun dessert too, because yeah. it looks so fancy and you, it's also pretty straightforward and you can make it again, you know, it's like these recipes, um, you know, I try and let people know, like you can use any fruit in the fruit crisp. You can top your pavlova with lime curd or lemon curd just by swapping the, you know, um, the zest and the juice, um, and then top it with whatever fruit, like you can use one frosting from one cake with a filling from another. Like there's, you know, there's wiggle room and the more you practice, like the, the better you get at it and the faster you get. And people are always like, well, how do you like learn to, you know, cook dinner more quickly? And I'm like, well, first, like you get a hungry kid hanging off your leg (laughs) and that'll speed you up. And then, yeah, you're just like, if you're doing the same thing, it's over and over. You're not like, oh, what's the recipe say? What am I supposed to do? And I think it also frees you up at the grocery store too, because you, um, you know what you need to get. Like I go in and can have a 50 yard stare and emerge with stuff for dinner because, you know, my brain starts to click into like, oh, I can do like this for my repertoire or that for my repertoire. So eventually I think, you know, it's that is sort of practice makes perfect idea. Like you will become like a faster and more confident cook if you like drill into 10 recipes rather than like dabble into 30. And you can hold off those hungry kids with your ways to start uh, fancy toasts, fancy which, toast. which are so easy and accessible and everyone needs a fancy toast under their belt. Yeah. Not physically under their belt, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's another one. Like, you can top it with all sorts... You know, that's when I, like, root around in the pantry and find, like, oh, here's some, like, canned sardines, or here's... You know, you can kind of riff on that endlessly, I think. Um, And also, like, the Negronis and potato chips uh, that are in the book. I only have one cocktail recipe in the book uh, for Negroni, because it's really, like, the only one that I can remember. I'm, like, a real dummy when it comes to cocktail recipes. You should listen to my Negroni show I did a few weeks ago. I will. I will. Um, and then, you know, I always have potato chips, and if you bust out Negronis and potato chips for even, like, the fanciest guests, people are, like, really happy. Potato chips are always the first thing to go. People love potato chips. I I feel like 
you're baiting me slightly because I should have had Negronis and potato chips here. Like you actually listened to that episode and yeah, I mean, yeah, you're very disappointed <laughs> today. Well, I mean, who's to know we don't? Yeah, who's to know I we mean, don't? These are delicious. These are wonderful. <laughs> I, I want to end with the three greatest cookies. I mean, that's a bold statement. It is a bold statement. Why are they? And well, what are they? Okay, so it's um, it's chocolate chip cookie. And again, I'm going to give another like another shout out to my wife because she is really the chocolate chip cookie maker in our family. And you know, I sort of hesitated about putting that recipe in the book because I felt like, you know, does the world really need another chocolate chip cookie recipe? And then I, you know, I eat chocolate chip cookies like all over the country. Like I, I will always buy them at a bakery if they look even like reasonably good. And so often they're like a, they're a disappointment. Um, and so I think there is something to this recipe because mine are not disappointing. And it's probably the one thing that we always have in our freezer. Like if we start to run low on frozen cookie dough balls, it's like a little, it's like a minor cry. You're like, okay, we got to like re up. Um, so there's that one. And then there's a cocoa oat cookie, which is like a deep chocolate, um, cookie that has a little bit of, this is one place where I get a little bit fussy. It has a little rice flour in addition to all purpose flour makes it a little chewy and it has unsweetened coconut in it. I'm a coconut freak. Um, and then the third one is my mother-in-law's recipe and she's not much of a cook, but she's a great baker. Um, and it's her recipe for ginger molasses cookies that are like the right amount of like crispy on the edge, chewy on the inside. I'm going to, I'm going to put all those to test. Yeah. It's going to be a tough job. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. But it, this book, and we only covered maybe about a dozen recipes, and there are 75 plus here. And usually when I make notes for a show, I put down a couple recipes I want to discuss, but you filled up a whole page. I mean, you filled up a whole book of repertoire. <laughs> and it's just such a great book to see from someone who's, you know, been in the food scene and co-authored many cookbooks and, you know, has a voice of their own. And I love your articles at San Francisco Chronicle. And to see this come together... Uh, I'm just waiting for the next repertoire and volume three and so on because th- there's a lot to unpack here. There's yeah, I got I think I got some more in me. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on. And if you haven't checked out repertoire yet, uh, it's from Little Brown and it should be in bookstores everywhere. A big thank you to Alaska Seafood for sponsoring music by Cookies and David Tattershore Engineering. Hope to have you back here on the food scene next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.